Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. We have two special guests for today's episode, Sekar and Bruce Held. Sekar and Bruce are research scientists at Stein Biotechnology at our lab up in Ames, Iowa. Welcome, Sekar and Bruce. Thank you, David. Yeah, hello, David. Glad to be here. So today we're going to talk to them about the work that goes on at Stein Biotechnology, get a little bit of background about the lab, and talk about some of the developments they've had to help our uh, grower customers maximize yield potential and have flexibility in their operations. We're going to u- learn how they use advanced proprietary technology to deliver the seed industry's best corn and soybean germplasm. So let's get started. Gentlemen, just to get us started, I thought we'd provide a little bit of background for our listeners' uh, biographical history. So maybe, Sekar, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Um, Thank you, David. I grew up in South India, and uh, I came to the U.S. uh, quite a long time ago to do a Ph.D., and I went to New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico, got my Ph.D. in biochemistry, and... uh, I did a little bit of postdoc in different places and worked with some ag bio industries in the U.S. and stayed here for so many years and then returned back to India, uh, South India again, uh, to a major university there and taught uh, biotechnology for about 10 years. And I became a professor and head of a department uh, there and I had 12 PhD students completed PhD under my guidance. and. Uh, and then I returned back in 2002 to United States, back again to Stein Biotechnology, and uh, that's that's my background. Oh, perfect. How about you, Bruce? Uh, yeah, I was I was raised on a on a farm in West Central North Dakota. It was in Morton County, actually. And there's something kind of interesting over the last 35 years that's happened in Morton County. When we grew up, there were no soybeans planted in Morton County. And now, now there are. And in fact, I, I think Stein has a, a independent sales rep that operates out of Morton County. So I, I find that interesting over the years how the soybean acres have changed. And so after that, I went to college at NDSU, North Dakota State University. And uh, it was there, you know, I took a genetics course and I learned for the first time about this process called transformation and how you could transfer a gene from one species to another. And you know, and that was the first, you know, the first transgenic plants were produced in like 82 and 83. So it was just new, new stuff, you know, and I, it caught my attention. And I thought, you know, I'd like to do some research in that area. So I continued to do some research. I got a master's degree there and I came to Iowa State and got a PhD. And then from there, I did a postdoc at ICI Seeds and then landed at Stein Biotech. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So I guess that's a good place for us to start. I know, you know, I've, I came to Stein in 1998 and Stein Biotech already <laughs> existed, right? So um, I know, Bruce, you were there and, and I'll kind of open it to both of you, but certainly can you give us a little bit of background about, you know, kind of the, the, the formation of Stein Biotech and how that all came into being? Yeah. Stein Biotech started in 1995 and Martin Wilson was the the first director and he was instrumental in getting that started along with Harry. But there's a little background to that. Harry had already uh, been funding some uh, soybean biotech research at what was then ICI Seeds. And that's where Martin was and he was the, he was directing that research. And in fact, the, the type of work they were doing, they were creating a genetic variation using tissue culture. And so they wound up with a product, actually. It was a variant of 2250, and I believe the line was called 1580, but it was very much like 2250, as I understand, but it was an earlier maturing variety, and so they could grow it up further north. So that was the first product out of that that work. Hmm. And then, you know, later on, 
as events turned out, Martin was let go, you know, from ICI Seeds. And so he approached Harry, and I think Harry, you know, was keen in starting a lab. And it was 1995 then, you know, and it was the year before the commercial release of Roundup Ready Soybeans, you know, so I think the timing was right for it, you know. And yeah, and most of us in ag hadn't heard a lot about biotech seed at that point, because like you said, the shot heard around the industry had not arrived yet, right, for Roundup Ready. That's exactly right. And so, you know, uh, Martin approached me and he, you know, I had a temporary position really, and he was like, you want to help start the lab, you know. And so there was about five people who were in that startup group, if you will. It was Martin, it was Liming Ho, and Janelle Eby, and there was Carol Lunau. Yeah, so there, were, there was five of us, and I remember it being an exciting time, but I also remember it being a daunting time, you know, because we didn't have any genes to work with. We, you know, we had to get some equipment and start from scratch, you know, and we wound up at the ISU Research Park in Ames, which has been good. Um, we've been there now going on 28 years, but we have a good relationship, you know, with Iowa State. Uh, they offer some services for us, you know, that we can utilize DNA sequencing and other other services and library, and, you know, we can interact with some of the people there at Iowa State. So the location's been been good, and that that's where we started, and that's where we still are. So... What I'm hearing you say, your path to Stein kind of came through Martin, your, your relationship yeah, with Martin. Exactly. And uh, I guess why, what, what was the motivation for you to make that jump at that time? Oh, I, I, I just looked at it as an opportunity. You know, I, you know I, I guess there was a lot of risk and, and that kind of thing involved, but I think I was young and it, it just looked like a, a good opportunity. And also... It's kind of interesting as a graduate student, I wound up working on some soybean plots, you know, and quite frankly, I, I'd never heard of Stein, okay? And I was working on these soybean plots, you know, where I think they took a 15-foot bar and you had to lay them beside the rows and you had to weed them back and they're going to do yield trials at Iowa State, you know. And I remember asking the, the professor in charge, I said, well, well who do you think's going to you know, win these trials. He goes, I think Stein's going to. And that's the very first time, you know, I, <laughs> I had heard of Stein. So I wasn't that familiar, you know, actually with it. But that I had that in my back of my mind yet that, this, you know, about the, that, that experience as a grad student. You know. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Sekar, you came to Stein Biotech in 2006. So just oh, a, 2002. 2002. Okay. And uh, so I guess what was your uh journey to stein biotech yeah. what led you there okay i was in india as i was mentioning before that uh, I, I worked here and then went back to india i was a professor there for whatever family reasons we thought we will return back to the u.s and uh, but i've heard about stein um quite a long time prior to that i was working with a biotech company at uh, madison wisconsin harry at that time had a lab in madison and it was called stein microbials and one of my friends worked there as a director, and I had close contacts with him for a long time and while I was in India, too. And uh, so when I wanted to return back to the U.S. again, uh, I thought of Stein and as a possible choice and approached Harry, and uh, uh, I got an offer uh, to work with him. And I've been here since then, 2002. And... Uh, and uh, by 2006, Martin was gone from uh, the Stein Biotech Group, and uh, I became the director of the uh, organization. I've been uh, holding that position ever since. Awesome. Awesome. And Bruce, Bruce mentioned there were five people that were originally Bruce, uh, Martin, uh, Car- Carol, Janelle, and Liming Ho. Two are still here, Carol and Janelle. And then we are now, uh, again, me, Sekar, and uh, Sume and Kyle are, we are the five people and we've been that uh, for a long time now uh, as a group. Well, and I know you do a lot of, uh, of fantastic work up there and a, and a lot of material goes through there. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the mission up there. I mean, what is the purpose? What is your lab doing up there as it relates to you know, Stein and our product line. Yes. Uh, the main motto of Harry and Stein is, uh, you know, Stein has yield. Uh, 
and anything to do to improve the yield of corn and soybean through genetic uh, uh, manipulations is what we do. And uh, basically, we look for genes uh, that we can introduce traits that we can introduce into corn or, and or soybean uh, through tissue culture, through uh, genetic manipulation. Um, if you can introduce and uh, show such introduced uh, traits, improve the quality of the, uh, uh, the crop, and finally gives a, a better yield, and that's, uh, that's what uh, our main, main goal is. And uh, so we do a lot of gene. Uh, we search for new novel genes associated with uh, novel traits. And primarily herbicide resistance uh, is one of the major, just like everybody else has. Sure. But we work with additional, uh, various additional traits that eventually uh, can give better yield uh, potential to the crops. And is the work at the lab focused primarily on corn and soybeans? Yes, primarily on corn and soybean, but we also have a smaller project. We work with a, uh, with a plant called Monada. That's an oil. Uh, that's a, it's a natural oil-producing plant, uh, essential oil-producing plant, and Harry works with that, and uh, we improve the quality. Monada is widely, it's a um, wild uh, plant variety that grows in Iowa and other several other Midwestern, even Eastern states. And uh, Harry has been uh, working on it for a long time to improve the sea, uh, quality of the you know, uh, plant for improved oil content. And uh, a certain oil profile, he's been looking for varieties of Monada that has certain oil profiles. And uh, through just continuous uh, culturing and uh, selection, he has been looking for varieties that has the oil profile that he is eventually interested in. And, and yeah, and Menarda may someday get its own podcast because <laughs> such an interesting yeah. uh, crop and an interesting plant. So yeah, yeah it's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, um, so yeah, we may want to circle back around to that. So, you know, over the years, like I said, I know you, you've done a lot of work there at the lab. What are, what are some of the things that you, you know, would list as accomplishments you guys have, have had while, during your time there? Well, like I mentioned, when we, when we started, you know, we, we didn't have um, any way of putting, say, the genes into a plant cell. You know, and at the time, there were primarily two ways of doing that, and that was agrobacterium and, and the gene gun. Uh, and so we needed, and those those methods were wrapped up in patents, usually by you know big multinational companies. And so we needed a way to introduce genes into cells so we could have freedom to operate. And Bruce, while we're on that topic, mm. you know, for the listeners, I think it might be good if we give a brief description of what those transformation methods are, right? For for maybe the uninitiated, agrobacterium mm. would be. It's a biological means of transferring DNA into the plant cell using agrobacterium itself. Right, so it's a bacteria that a basically uses Agrobacterium yeah. is a plant pathogenic bacterium. Yep. It has a, naturally it has a way of when it infects, usually dicot plants, when it infects, it, it does infect through wounds in the plant. And it gets through the plant tissue, through the wounds in the plant. And, it, uh, you know, it, it has a way of send, sending it a small piece of its own DNA into the plant mm -hmm. and makes the plant to proliferate at the site of infection, causes a gall in the tissue, you know, where it in, enters in, it produces a gall. It's called a crown gall bacterium, you know, that causes, you know, several dicot plants. And much later, this has been known for a long time, but by early uh, 1970s or so, people found out the mechanism by which it, uh, it, it manipulates the plant cells to grow uh, like a gall. And uh, it's b by the way of introducing a small piece of its own DNA into the plant and in, asks the plant or makes the plant to make the compounds that it wants, it can utilize and grow on. So once that mechanism was uh, found out, then people thought, okay, if we took out what are, whatever the toxic components that are present in this small piece of DNA that goes from the bacterium into the plant to make the plants to grow as a cancerous tissue, if you knew the mechanism and figured out which part of its DNA causes all this proliferation, uh, once they knew that, they removed all that. Instead, you can introduce whatever DNA you want into that little piece of DNA. 
that goes from agrobacterium into the plant. And like a Roundup resistance gene, like whatever trait that you want to introduce, if you introduce into that little small piece of DNA that goes from agrobacterium into plant, then agro you put that DNA into agrobacterium, agrobacterium will deliver into the plant. And that's how you agrobacterium immediated transformation works. So that way you're using this uh, bacteria's own natural mechanism, you're basically hijacking it to exactly. deliver the DNA that you exactly. want to deliver yeah. into the plant. Na natural plant genetic engineer is agrobacterium. And that's, yeah. that's what we use. And several of the crops probably that we're used to today, right, were, were probably work was done through agrobacterium. Is yes. that correct? Yes, and in yeah. fact, you know, agrobacterium was the first means used to transform plants. And so, like Sekar mentioned, it was mainly a dicot pathogen. And so when, you know, people wanted to transform corn, at that point in time in history, agrobacterium wasn't working for corn. So that led to the gene gun. Okay. And the gene gun is really a mechanical way to introduce if, what we call naked DNA. You know, you, and you use particles, usually around one micron in size or a little smaller, you coat them with the DNA and you literally blast those particles into the plant cells. And, and that was you know, used in a lot of monocots, especially at first, but it was used in some dicots too. You know, so those were the main two methods. There's some other methods that are around, like they called it whiskers and electroporation, but I think you know, those were the main two at but, that point in time. But as you said, those were the two main ones, but um, due to different patents and things. Yeah. A lot of companies had fairly controlling interest in those yeah. projects. So uh, how did you guys respond to that? Well, we thought we needed a novel way of doing this, you know, getting the DNA through the plant cell wall. And so we knew of a, a professor at the University of Chicago, Dr. Lauren Metz, and he had this idea of using an aerosol beam injector, you know, and, and he had the idea of accelerating this without particles. You know, it's, it's a law of physics where if you generate a, uh, a mist, you know, in an upper chamber and then draw it through a small nozzle into a vacuum chamber, and at that point in the nozzle, these droplets would be accelerated, they said, to supersonic speeds. And so it was a different mechanism of acceleration. It was, didn't utilize any particles, and it looked like it would work. You know, it might, might have a chance of working. So we worked with them in the early days. And, you know, we made some improvements to, to it. And I think we reduced it to practice, as they say. You know, and so we filed some patents on that. And, you know, from that time on, we had freedom to operate, you know, with that device. I, I should also mention we uh, worked with an engineer at Iowa State, too. His name was uh, John Jackman. And he really helped us in prototyping and introducing some, some electronics. You know, we had a, uh, a stage that was cr controlled with a computer and with electronics, and he made it a really nice, workable, usable system for us. So aerosol beam injector really went from theory to, you know, to practice, practice yeah. in, in your lab. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you use that method. I assume you probably use the other methods as well at various times, but depending on what the right approach is. Exactly, okay. yeah. So the aerosol beam injector, what does that bring to Stein Biotechnology? What, what, you know, what, what are the benefits of having that uh, in your arsenal? Well, you know, I think the main benefit was the freedom to operate, you know. But, and with all these methods, some of them, there's disadvantages and advantages. Sure. You know, for, I think, for instance, agrobacterium, one of the main advantages was it had a, what we called a reduced copy number of integrations, you know, in, in the genome. It was a, a benefit of agrobacterium. But nowadays, with gene editing coming on and things like that, I think naked DNA delivery methods have become a little bit more in favor because you can introduce maybe RNA, just RNA. You can introduce protein perhaps, you know, and, you know, that, that might it's actually beneficial to do that. And you can't do that with agrobacterium, just introduce RNA alone or a protein alone. So an aerosol beam injector would have the advantages of any naked DNA delivery system. I think to deliver RNA or oligos or that kind of thing, it would be good at. And when you talk about freedom to operate, I know 
one of those things is like you said with, with if you're using one of those other methods you're kind of having to play in the other company's sandbox so to speak right oh, yeah. and so they may say to you well we like your project we think that's okay or they might say well i don't know if <laughs> i don't know if we want you uh doing that so having the flexibility to use your own method oh yeah uh, and even even the ability to say well if you don't we have that flexibility right and that that's that's really kind of the the, the advantage that you have with that yeah with that tool yeah, and in the in the early days, we attracted some gene discovery companies. You know, they were in it. They they had some genes that they wanted to test. You know, we could say to them, "Look, at we can introduce them for you, and we can test them. And there's even a pathway to market for you. You know, if they really work. You know, so you know, it gave us that opportunity too to, you know, work with others. Because is, is it would it be fair to say that? Um some of the companies in, who are in what I'd call gene discovery is that that's all they do, right? I mean, I mean yeah. they, they don't have uh, germplasm. They right. don't have exactly. transformation. They don't have uh, they don't have marketing a, a marketing <laughs> arm to, to even if if they make a product. So right. in that sense, Stein Biotech kind of provides a one stop shop of mm -hmm. sorts. Okay. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about, uh, I think, Bruce, or Sekar, you had mentioned you do some gene discovery or, or you're involved in some gene discovery. So we, we talked about that just now. Uh, I, I guess I know there's companies that specialize in that. So how do you find the genes of interest that you guys are looking to get involved with? Uh, it, it's a very complex process. And if you, if you know what you're looking for, uh, like uh, herbicide resistance, let's say it's a little easier to talk about our insect resistance for that matter. Uh, insect resistance is uh, fairly well known. In nature, there's a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis. It's called Bt for short. And Bt incorporated uh, plants are known for a long time now. You know, the Bt bacterium produces a protein and which is insecticidal in nature. And there's a variety of Bt strains available in nature. Some Bt proteins kill mosquitoes. Some Bt proteins kill um, beetles. Some kill Lepidopteran, this larva, you know, various forms of larva. So there's a wide variety of Bt strains available in nature. So if, for example, we are interested in a corn rootworm killing um, Bacillus thuringiensis Bt, we needed to screen uh, a variety of, you know, from various sources, uh, identify Bt strains, and then test them on corn rootworm larvae. And for if, if you're lucky, you know, this has been done throughout the world through with the various major biotech companies working on it. If it's very difficult for you to really hopefully get one, but if you did end up getting a Bacillus thuringiensis strain killing a corn rootworm larvae, you go back to the organism, the Bt, and figure out what gene from Bt kills that uh, corn rootworm larvae. And once you identify that gene uh, from the bacterium, you dissect that gene out from the bacterial's, uh, bacterial uh, genome chromosome, uh, or bacterial DNA and take that piece of uh, DNA that is responsible for making that protein that kills the corn rootworm larvae. Take that, identify that. These are all a lot of basic research you needed to do first. Once you identify that, then you take that gene and then uh, put it into a, uh, in a DNA, what we call a construct that is, you know, where you introduce the DNA into a, another uh, DNA, piece of DNA that can be introduced into the plant cells. So you take the gene from, from a bacterium, adapt it in such a way that it will be expressed or the protein will be produced from that gene in, in a plant cell. You, you make all the tweakings in test tube, in vitro, it's called. So you do that, and then once you come up with a DNA construct that has that BT gene that is now ready to be delivered into a plant cell, then uh, pass it on, let's say, to Bruce, and he, uh, you, through aerosol beam injection, introduces into plant cells. And eventually we come up with plants that has the gene in it, and then we test those you know, plants that come out of the transformation for their ability to kill uh, corn rootworm larvae. If I may... In inject mm. something here. 
actually Sekar is a BT expert. And he's, he's actually widely known for having isolated the first coleopteran active gene from uh, BT, and it was called CRY3. Uh, we were the, one of the very first ones to identify, uh, identify uh, coleopteran potato, uh, Colorado potato beetle specific uh, you know, and that's toxic to Colorado potato beetle, but that's the first time ever a BT that is killing a coleopteran larvae was identified by us. Uh, we also were involved in, for, for the first time, uh, identifying uh, BT, BT protein that kills mosquitoes. And uh, uh, that's called a CRY4 protein, you know, CRY4 gene or CRY4 protein. CRY3 is the coleopteran one. I was involved in discovering that and... Uh, and oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So That's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. You mentioned something I want to go back to talking about constructs because as, as someone who's not a scientist, I was kind of very interested in this. You know, my uninitiated view of things were, oh, you find these genes and you kind of open the hood and you throw them in and, and everything's good. But as you just pointed out, you kind of have to know what it is you're trying to address, right? In the case of corn rootworm, I've heard you say, <laughs> you know, it does no good if you put that gene in and it in expresses in the tassel, for example, because that's not really where you're trying. So talk a little bit about making the constructs. I think that's something that's important for people to understand. You don't just throw it in and it does what you want it to do. Yeah, right? a very good example, as you are saying, this corn rootworm uh, toxic, gene, uh, toxic protein that is made by BT. Uh, so the gene... You know, there is a gene in a, a certain type of BT organism, which is called, uh, corn, which, which may be responsible for killing corn rootworm uh, larvae. So we take that gene from the B BT bacterium, and then you need it to, the way a gene works is a gene has three functional parts to it. You know, the first, the very first beginning of the gene is called a promoter. And then the middle part is actual gene that is responsible for making a protein. And the last part is called a terminator or ending part. It's a, a termination of the gene. So the promoter and terminator, terminator elements are so specific what is in the BT organism for producing the BT coleopteran toxic uh, protein. The promoter in BT will not be recognized as a promoter in a plant. So also the terminator that's present in the original BT genes, you know, coleopteran gene, will not be recognized as a terminator. So if you took the whole thing and put it into just like that from BT into plants, it will not be making the BT uh, protein that is responsible for killing coleopteran larvae. So you needed to dissect the promoter and the terminator elements out of the original gene and instead introduce a promoter and terminator elements that is specific for a crop that you are interested in. Even within the plant kingdom, corn, you know, a monocot, uh, soybean, a dicot, they do have different specificities as, uh, for, for what they can recognize as a promoter and a terminator. And there may be some promoters and terminators that may work in both crops too. But in addition to that, your question is well-founded because, you know, a the corn rootworm feeds on the root, you know. So you do not want to put a promoter that is expressed in a leaf or a tassel in, if you want to kill the corn rootworm larvae that is feeding in the roots. So you needed to introduce a root-specific promoter if you're taking the coleopteran uh, the corn rootworm-specific um, protein that you want to express in, uh, into plants, into corn plants, you need to have a root-specific promoter and a BT gene that is responsible for uh, the corn rootworm larvae and then a terminator that can really stop the uh, expression of the gene at that point. So those are very specific you know, elements that you have to introduce at the very beginning of the gene and the ending of the gene, as well as you have to modify the gene per se in such a way that the genes, even though without changing the amino acid composition of the protein, you needed to modify what's called the codons. Plants have a different specific, monocots have a different specificity for each codon. Codons are three bases in a DNA that encodes for a given amino acid. And so what is present in a bacterium for a specific codon for a specific amino acid, you know, you, you cannot may or may not be you know, recognized or recognized well in a plant. If you want to maintain that 
amino acid in that position, you, you have a little way of adjusting the codons uh, in the bacterial gene so that you can tweak it in such a way it will be recognized much better in a monocot or a dicot. So you needed to do a lot of modifications at the beginning of the gene, actual gene, at the end of the gene, and once you make all the tweakings, then it becomes a plate cassette that is ready for expression in a plant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so, th so there's all these different components that go into it. You have to find the gene, then you have to kind of, uh, the gene sequence you want, then you have to s modify it slightly to fit the organism you're going to put it into. Exactly. But you also have to have the right, you know, like you said, promoter and the right, you know, terminator on the end of it. If you don't do any of those parts, if you screw up one of those parts, the result is probably not going to be what you want it to be, right? Exactly. So, and, and like I said, I think that's kind of a misconception sometimes among the uninitiated is that it's that it's a lot simpler than that. Uh, of course, we all know that you know at the base level they're all you know all, all all the all the sequence all the genes are are similar in their composition, but how they're arranged is is very unique, right? So while we're talking about things you, you know novel uh, introductions there at Stein, I know there was some work around uh, an event called HCEM 485. Um, I know Bruce, you had some involvement in that. I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that for the listeners. Yeah, that event is what we call a cisgenic event. And so you have transgenic events. That's where you take a gene outside the species you're working on and you put it in. But with cisgenic, you're, you're dealing with a gene that comes from the, the same species that you're working with. So in this case, we took a corn gene and put it back into corn. You know, but this gene, uh, we mutated. We, we performed targeted mutations in two different locations, and those mutations gave it resistance to, to glyphosate. And we went to the corn genome, we found the EPSP gene, and we used all of its regulatory elements that, that were in the corn genome as, it, as they were. We used the promoter, we used the terminal terminus, and we also used the introns that came with that gene. These are intervening sequences. So the complete genomic fragment we used, and we introduced it with the aerosol beam injector alone with nothing else, no bacterial sequences or anything. And we, we got glyphosate resistance corn, you know, and it was cisgenic. And I remember, you know, at the time, this really fell outside of the regulatory, you know, scope. And we, in fact, we went and visited them, uh, you know, the U.S. regulatory authorities, and we said, here, you know, here's what we have. It doesn't fit into your regulations really, you know, would you recommend for us, you know, what to do? Because at that time, what you're describing is corn genes mm -hmm. in a corn plant. Yeah. The only, you know, if you call it alteration, is this mutation, mm -hmm. which, if I'm correct, is a known mutation that, to yeah. some extent, can occur naturally. Yes, exactly. Right? So, so virtually indistinguishable from... Yeah. conventional corn. So right. you take it to the regulatory agency, say, this is corn. Yeah. What do you want to do with it? Right? Yeah, exactly. And they listened to us and they were like, you're, you're right. This actually really technically falls outside of our regulations. You know, we don't know quite how to handle this, but we would recommend that you put together a package, a kind of a minimal package and send it through our regulations, you know, just you know, they recommended that. So that's what we did. We went and put together a, a kind of a minimal regulatory package, of, you know, describing the event and doing some of the tests that they wanted us to do. And and so actually, you know, it went through the system and, and it was, you know, approved. And we also went through the Canadian system while we're at it, you know. So it was a unique event. You, you know, it was it was kind of fun to work on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, currently we don't, commercialize it it's it's no. obviously you'd have to have all the other global regulatory approvals yeah. that come with it but i thought the part i thought was interesting about that story is like you said it really didn't fit the conventional uh you know story of of what the regulatory rules were around i mean here you had glyphosate corn yeah you know, essentially occurring naturally right and I thought that was really, really novel. And it forced a conversation, I think, within our industry, at least at that time, that mm -hmm. needed to be had. 
Yeah, and also by having that selectable marker available to us, we went and filed a patent on it, and we were able to then use that as a platform to combine other corn genes to it and so make more cisgenic plants, you know, because it works so well as a selectable marker. You know, so if you wanted to, you know, find another trait, say maybe it was for, you know, let's say yield increase, although that's, you know, a tough trait to right. handle with one gene. You could, you could connect it to there and call it a cisgenic event again. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, the work that's going on right now, the work that you're doing today at Stein Biotech. What are some of the things that are, uh, y- you know, taking your time, the things that you're working on trying to deliver for, uh, you know, eventually for growers? You know, one of the things you, you talked about, your dedicated lab of people, you got a great team there. But, uh, you know, as we talk about all the time, you know, you know, you only have so many people and there's so many hours in the day. One of the things I know you guys rely heavily on is collaborations with other companies so that you can play to your strengths and, and you know, bring in other resources. So, can you talk a little bit about some of the collaboration work that you do? Yeah, uh, we have done quite a bit of work with other companies and came up with the uh, products uh, through these collaborations. The first one we did was uh, the product GT27, you know, uh, soybean. And uh, we worked with the Bayer at that time. And uh, we were involved quite heavily in uh, looking at the biosafety information that, uh, you know, when, when you have an event, it was called FG72, or the original event was called FG72. And you, in order to get through regulations, you have to do a lot of uh, work, uh, biosafety and agronomic and yield analysis and all that you needed to uh, do in field and in the lab. And we were involved in reviewing and looking at it uh, carefully and uh, making all kinds of suggestions and uh, coming up with the final event or events that may be taken forward. And in this case, the FG70, you know, before FG72, there was additional event called FG74. It had some pitfalls, so we ended up uh, finally zooming in on FG72 event, which is GT27. Later, uh, again with Bayer, we made a stack, breeding stack with, uh, with FG72 and LL55. And we were involved in, again in the regulatory uh, uh, package uh, processing. And, and the feather on the cap is our uh, collaboration with the Dow and uh, produced E3. And we were involved right from the beginning through the end in event selection. And in, in order to select an event from all these, uh, whatever trait that you are trying to put into, let's say, soybean, uh, you have to look at a lot of different events, choose the best event to take forward. And uh, in order to do that, you, that, that really depends on various uh, results from various analysis. Uh, again, uh, biosafety, um, uh, and then uh, agronomic traits, and then yield. yield. And eventually, you know, do all that. Based on all those results, uh, Bruce and I was instrumental in, along with the scientists of Dow, um, figuring out uh, the main event for the uh, triple stack in soybean uh, as E3 was our, uh, we, we were quite uh, heavily involved in selecting the E3 4406 event and then other backup events uh, f- for that uh, triple stack uh, trade. And so we, ha- we had been working with, uh, again, a lot of different companies, particularly with Bayer and, uh, and uh, Dow, and coming up, coming up with all these products uh, over the years. Well, and, and that's a those are pretty good name drops, Sekar, because for our team, yeah. uh, you know, Liberlink GT27 has been a big product, and now, of course, Enlist E3, huge product for uh, our sales team and for the customers that we work with. So to know that you guys had a part in that is really, really kind of fun and exciting. So with that feather in your cap, I guess what kind of things are on the horizon? What are you guys looking at now going forward? We just we are looking. Uh, we are working with right now. One of the major efforts that we are putting in is uh, um, developing uh, soybean and corn plants through gene editing, and uh, we are working quite uh, quite a bit on coming up with edited plants rather than 
GMO plants. I, I, I suppose you see the you know distinction. Uh, instead of introducing a whole gene from a different source or from a different from the same plant as a, a you know modified version of it or whatever into a plant, you go and edit the plant's own genome and then come up with possible traits. You know, improve a certain trait that's already present in the plant, in the crop, but through editing, you tweak it, make it better. And you can do, editing has its own pluses and minuses. The minus could be that you can tweak only so much. You know, you may have to introduce a novel sure. gene in order to really come up with a totally novel trait. But you may tweak a lot of different genes in such a way that you can improve the, any given trait slightly or possibly you can do that, you know. But for example, BT gene has insect resistance property and that is not present in plants no matter how much you tweak. Exactly. You cannot come up with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, cannot, you cannot come up with that. Or herbicide resistance gene from coming from, uh, glyphosate is a totally different story, but n novel herbicides, various other, you know, let's say 2,4-D. It's not present in plants. Anyway, so 2,4-D type uh, resistance uh, property cannot be manipulated so easily within a plant. But you can do a lot of other things uh, by tweaking the plant's own genome uh, through gene editing. And But the main uh, reason for going through that route is uh, gene-edited plants are normally it's uh, exempt from regulation within the U.S., you know. And Europe has still not, uh, you know, passed a uh, mandate or rule that it's, uh, you know, exempt yet. But it, it's, it seems like it's only a matter of time before uh, Europe uh, goes, goes with that. We don't know that. We have been looking at Europe for the last several years, uh, hoping that they will exempt it. But uh, so far, it has not uh, been the case. So we are looking at novel traits uh, to come up with novel traits through gene editing in both corn and soybean. And I don't want to minimize your work. I may be unfair because I have told groups before, you know, the science is not the hard part. Sometimes it's the politics that's uh, the hard part, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think what I hear you saying is, you know, that, that gene editing may provide may provide a more streamlined right. pathway from a regulatory perspective to be able to bring, because, you know, these products these days take, you know, 10, 12, you know, years to come to market and, and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. uh, to get them uh, into the marketplace, into farmers' hands. And so that's a real struggle. So anything we can do to improve that, I think is a good thing, right? I yes. think, David, that that's a real issue for us. You know, any of the traits we come up with they have to be have a large impact in order to warrant the cost of getting them through all this regulatory, you know, system. You know, it really, you know, with editing, maybe we won't have to do that. But you know, currently there's still international regulations to be concerned with. Yeah, so so that's a good point. What you're saying, you know, somebody might say, you know, in this particular part of my, in my part of the world, this is a big big issue. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a company, we may have to say, well, I understand that's a big issue, but we don't have hundreds of millions of dollars in a decade's time to solve that very specific small issue, right? Because in order to recoup our cost of investment and research, we really have to work on the big picture projects. Yeah. Is that fair? Very yeah. true. Very, very true. I think that's something when I was younger, I had no idea about, you know, <laughs> you know, we looked at biotech and thought, wow. You know, but the regulations part of it, you know, that was something that, that came about later and just seemed to grow and grow and get more complex, you know, as to, you know, involve the whole world, basically. And to be fair, I think it's changed, right? You know, one time I remember reading about, you know, when Roundup Ready, when original Roundup Ready soybeans mm -hmm. came out in the mid-90s, the list of countries you had to get approval in. And, and I want to say it was 14, 15 or something. And that's 2x and maybe 3x today mm -hmm. for a product you yeah. want to release today in at least in broad acre crop. So, um, so I think it's just inherently become that much more complex as time went on. But well, that's exciting. So uh, gene editing may have a prospects for creating uh, additional products uh, that would bring value to to those growers. You know, the other thing I think I guess I'll ask you, you know, I think Bruce had, had kind of as an example talked about yield enhancement, right? So I'm sure there are certain processes that are 
easier than others, right? So would it be fair to say when people start talking about, oh, we're going to try to map, you know, the parts of the genome that relate to yield. In my mind, I picture that being an extremely complex thing because I'm sure there's a lot of interactions. It's a, is that fair? Is that a, a correct assessment? Yes, I think that's very fair assessment. I think the complexity of the genome and, and the interactions are, are just oftentimes beyond our, our comprehension or, or just very, you know, catch you off guard <laughs> because you, you think you did something, but oh no, something else influences it, you know, and it doesn't work like you planned, you know. So it, it's very complex to, to especially, uh, you know, a lot of these traits, even, even simpler traits that we've worked on, you, you know, that you think are maybe single gene traits or you know, they turn out to be multigenic or bigger than you thought, you know. They involve maybe 100 genes that, you, you know, you weren't aware of or something like that. So it becomes, it can become complex. So you can imagine yield, how complex that is. Yeah, I would think there's just a lot of interactions that take place there that, w- that would be difficult to come up with the whiz-bang thing that's going to create, you know, inherently higher yield, right? You know, there's been some companies that have approached us and said, hey, we got this gene that makes larger seed. You know, it's going to increase yield. Well, larger seed isn't what increase yield is. You know, <laughs> you got to put it on an acre. You know, they, they, they like don't understand the concept of, oh, it's weight per acre. You know, and it doesn't, you know, larger seed doesn't doesn't mean you're going to get more yield. Right. What if you get less seed or whatever, you yeah, know? Yeah, fewer seeds or <laughs> and, whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's it's kind of interesting. Even the concept <laughs> of yield a lot of times out there isn't the farmer or, you know, isn't what we deal with, you know, when it comes to yield. And, and that's where the benefit of Stein comes in probably because you guys know that and you can take mm-hmm. it from the biotech through the development, through the elite trial testing, and eventually, if it works, yeah. you know, we put it in a bag and we can sell it to farmers. I think that's fantastic. So as we kind of wrapping up the conversation, I guess one question I have in my mind I was going to ask you is, you know, Sekar, I guess I'll start with you. What is something that you wish that our farmer customers knew about what it is you do? Yeah, just like what I mentioned before, is this is so precise a science, you know, in order to come up with a new trait, discovery of the trait, and then from whatever source, and then introducing it to a plant and making that uh, trait to work in that plant and screening and testing and making sure the trait is to the level that you are expecting. Um, This all takes a long time. And so from the lab to to the field as a product, uh, it may take a, a decade or more and that's one thing that farmers need to understand. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work, actually. Take, and if, if the farm, one of the things farmers may be surprised is, uh, like, you know, you may have heard uh, Bill say, over 90 or 95% of the projects that we work with uh, don't pan out to anything. So we'll be lucky if 5% or uh, in that ballpark, if, if 5% of our well, projects clicked to a certain extent. Uh, will be that'll be a big, big you know reward for us. And so it's a lot of uh, even though it's a precise science, it's still a lot of um, trial and error. And yeah. so it takes uh, it takes a lot of effort and time. Yeah. How about you, Bruce? Thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, we we've had some farmers come through our lab, and I I just like to tell them how the nature of what we do is so different than the nature of what they, they do. You know, I'm from a farm originally, and, you know, farmers work with large equipment and, you know, big acres and, and that kind of thing. And what we do is on such a micro scale, you know, we work with small things, nanoliters, microliters, you know, micrograms, nanograms. And, and when we work with DNA itself, you're working with something you can't see you know, with the naked eye, you know, and you always have to analyze it to know what you're working with, you know, so, but you're actually working with something you, you can't see. So the nature of it is, is so different, you know, that, that way we work with such small things really. Yeah. 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 It's a whole different scale. Yeah. And, you know, I like to, to, you know, just what expand just a little bit on what Sekar says, what we do, we fail a lot, you know, and that's the nature of research, right? Right. You know, but I feel it's a, 
really, you know, it's a privilege to work in that area and to actually be able to fail, I guess, you know, that's something, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, that oftentimes I think, you know, failure, failure comes with, you know, success, you know, so, yep. you know, you fail a lot. So it's a, a bit of a privilege to actually have that opportunity to work, you know, in that environment. Well, and, and as you alluded to, you know, over the years, I know I've brought a lot of farmers uh, to visit you guys up in Ames to tour the lab. And, uh, you know, just like me, they don't always understand everything that's going on there, but it's fascinating. And it's, uh, and, and, and they come away with an understanding of the, the seriousness of the work and, and the level of work that's being done. Um, and, and we appreciate that. And I think the other thing I was just gonna say, Bruce, I always appreciate you, you know, um, you know, you guys understand the end use of the product. Um, you know, Bruce will call me, you know, two or three times a year and he'll say, how are sales doing? You know, what are the products, you <laughs> yeah. know, what are farmers buying? And I, and, and I want you to know that, that I think our, we appreciate that because, you know, I think you don't just say, well, okay, we've done our little part of the project and now it's gone. You know, you care about where that, where that ends up and how it's getting used. And I think that's a fantastic testament to, to the work that you guys have done there at the lab. And, and, and so, um, anyway, appreciate having you here. It's been a great conversation. Um, I really, really appreciate what you do for Stein and, uh, wish you, uh, much success in the future. And we'll, uh, want to have you on again and visit about new things. So thank you. Thanks to you both. Thank you, thank David. You, David. That's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and listeners for joining us for another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield. <laughs>